Well, I thought we'd do something kind of fun today because uh, of the overpopularity to one sutta being the official way to meditate. So I wanted to go over the Satipatthana Sutta and try to clear up some weird ideas that have developed over a period of time with the Satipatthana Sutta. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read some and then I'm gonna comment and see if you agree with what I'm saying. Thus have I heard yeah, let me turn the light on first. What number is that, Bante? Ten. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country in the town of the Kurus named Kamasadama. Basically, that town is named uh, Happy Action. That's, that's Kama Sadama. There he addressed the monks thus, monks, venerable sir, they replied, the blessed one said this. Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings. I don't like that translation makes it sound like it's the only path. But it is intertwined in all of the other ways that you practice the meditation, and I'll get to that in a bit. <clears throat> for surmounting sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the, the attainment of the true way and I instead of the true way I change it to a true way and that gives it more leeway when you when you think about it namely the four foundations of mindfulness what are the four here a monk abides and they use the word contemplating the body as a body. And that translation, I don't really like too much because that means thinking about, and this meditation is not about thinking. It's about observing. So I'll change that word to observing the body as a body. And there are a lot of translations of this that change a couple of words and they translate it as a body in a body, which is completely confusing. And it puts it more in the realm of psychology than it does Buddhism, which isn't the same thing. Sometimes they intertwine a little bit, but not much. 
ardently fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides observing feeling as feelings. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi, when he did the translation, he put an S on the end of feeling. And that implies emotion, emotional feelings. And that's not what the Buddha was teaching. So there's, there's some mistakes that are being made. Now, don't get the idea that I think Bhikkhu Bodhi is not a great translator. He is. But we're all human beings and we all have our own uh, we all have our own way of thinking about things. And this one is just a little bit off, not much. So I change that to feeling as feeling. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Covetousness, I like it. Grief, aversion, I don't like it. So we could actually even change those words if we wanted. He abides observing mind as mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Another translation for covetousness and grief is craving. Now, isn't that a different kind of way to look at it? Having given up craving. And that changes your perspective about what this sutta is about. He abides observing mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Now, one of the things that uh, the phenomena that's been happening is people aren't getting results by thinking about the four and thinking is, is the key problem. Thinking about the four foundations of mindful, thinking of mindfulness, thinking that they can... Uh, just take one of the foundations and make it work. I've heard people talking about, yeah, I'm doing chaita, nupasana, and everybody else around them goes, ooh, that's really tough. How do you do that with your daily activities? Well, it's like you're trying to make some bread and you're only using flour and you're not putting any exert or other ingredients in it to make it a successful loaf of bread. And then you wonder why it doesn't work 
And then you keep trying and trying because you said, in the Satipatthana Sutta, it says this. But it's not the whole formula. These are interconnected. The body, you have to have a body. There are feelings, but it is pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant. It's not emotional. And mind, you don't just watch mind until you are able to go deeper into the meditation. So it's not a, and you still need, the feeling is still there. And when there's contact, body is still there. So the mind objects, now one of the things that's really amazing is the uh, hindrances by most people that are practicing meditation, they treat hindrances like it's some kind of enemy. And they try to suppress the hindrances. And they try to push them down. And they complain when there is some kind of a loud noise that quotes, disturbs my meditation. Now, this is a major problem if you want to be successful with your meditation. All of these are part of being successful. And when you're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness correctly, you're using them so that your mind will not be so susceptible to hindrances. Now, again, you're, you're hearing me say the same thing over and over again, because it is so incredibly important. When Vipassana came to America, the Vipassana teachers thought that uh, keeping the precepts was too close to the Catholic religion where there was a lot of uh, rejection, fear, and uh, guilty feeling. So they didn't stress the importance of keeping the precepts. Now, the precepts are not laws that you have to follow, but they're suggestions that when you do follow the precepts, mind will become more clear and you'll be able to sit and more quickly get into 
your um, object of meditation and stay with it, which a lot of people call concentration. And to be honest, it is a form of concentration, but it's not the same as what the Buddha taught. So I don't like to use the word concentration. I like to use the word collectedness because that's more accurate towards being successful with the meditation. Now, because the, the five hindrances are the first thing that's talked about when you're talking about mind objects, it's pretty important. But what is your instruction when a mind, mind gets distracted? Oh, just ignore it or suppress it, push it away, stop it from coming up. And that gets you to practice wrong effort. That means you're trying too hard. And an awful lot of people that are practicing the other forms of meditation wind up with massive headaches and pressure in their heads. And you go to the teacher and you say, boy, I really got this headache and my mind is so active. And what do they tell you to do? Oh, it'll go away eventually. Don't, don't pay attention to it. Is that part of full awareness? Or are you getting into a different form of meditation that some people say is a form of self-hypnosis? And then you can develop this idea that you can sit with a quiet mind without having any disturbance at all. But that's the force of the concentration causing that to appear faster and it seems to work because the hindrances don't come up. The force of the concentration pushes it down. And that is not the path of the Buddha. Full awareness, think of that. What is full awareness supposed to be? Suppression? Something that makes your mind go and get real tight? It doesn't lead to the freedom and it reinforces the idea of I am that. Now, what's one of the first things that you hear when you, when you practice meditation with other people? Anicca dukkha anatta. What is anatta? That's a big question for an awful lot of people. 
It means I'm not there. How can I not be there and be aware of it? Who's aware? And there's all of these kind of questions that come up. So it's a real amazing phenomena that so many people like to take the idea of the Buddha teaching uh, freedom and they want that to let go of that suffering, but they're not willing to try the way the Buddha suggests. So they go off on other paths and they, they might call it Buddhism. They might even read uh, some things from the suttas, but it's really confusing and it doesn't work very well. Now, when you come here and you practice, the first day I'm gonna start showing you something different. I don't care how long people have been practicing meditation. I'm showing you something different. It's new, it's exciting, and it's old because this is closer to the original teaching of the Buddha himself. The Buddha, the first discourse that he gave was the Eightfold Path, among other things. And in that Eightfold Path is very clear instruction in how to practice the way he's showing. Now he was showing people that had been doing meditation for a long time. They've been doing all kinds of different things. They even pushed him away because they he wouldn't continue on when he saw it didn't work. When he came back, he had to convince them that there is a different way and the way is the Eightfold Path, but it's a different way. It's a middle way of looking at things. A lot of people think that that's just surface stuff, but it was actually incredibly deep because the Eightfold Path is the middle way. It's a middle way that eliminates, gets rid of that false belief in a personal self, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anatta! Now, a lot of people say anatta, A means no, atta is self. And that's as far as they go with the definition. So I give it a different definition. Anatta is the impersonal way of seeing life. 
Uh, this gets all confused because there's an awful lot of people that they say, well, you have to be mindful. For years, literally uh, more than 20 years, my teachers, when I ask them what mindfulness is, uh, just be aware. Well, what in the world is that supposed to mean? You're supposed to know what that definition means. And now you have a whole lot of different definitions and that confuses everything. When you look at dependent origination, you see that this is a process of the way the Buddha describes how this all works. This is a process. And it's not a personal process. It's not something that's owned by me. It's just a scientific way of looking at how this life process works. Now, let's get back to the definition of mindfulness. With the understanding I just gave you, this will make complete sense. Mindfulness is remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one thing to another. That's another way of saying it's a way of remembering because you have to keep your attention on your object of meditation pretty well. You have to keep your attention there to be able to observe that this is a process and it's an impersonal process, anatta. No, because everything is so intertwined. I want you to go back to the Satipatthana Sutta and look at the instructions in meditation that the Buddha gives for mindfulness of breathing. But it's not only mindfulness of breathing. It's every kind of meditation that the, the, the Buddha taught. This is the instruction. Now, when you get to this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, this is part of observing the mind or body as a body. When breathing in, Long, he understands, I breathe in long. When breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. While breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short. While breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. Now, when you're given instruction in mindfulness of breathing, 
Does it say that you focus someplace in your body? Does this say you only pay attention to the breath and suppress or ignore anything else? Is the nose or the abdomen or the upper lip, is that talked about? Is that mentioned in this instruction? No. Why? Because it's not there. Why did we start teaching differently from the first set of the instruction? And yes, I was taught that way for 20 years by myriad different meditation teachers because I was doing mindfulness of breathing. To the exclusion of the other parts of the Satipatthana Sutta. I was supposed to focus on that. And I was supposed to focus so deeply that I would see the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, and the going out of the in-breath, then the pause, and then breathing in. So I was supposed to keep my attention on that to the exclusion of every, every other part of the Satipatthana Sutta. And that is why a lot of people are practicing one-pointed concentration because they believe that this is the way that the Buddha taught. And they don't investigate and see, well, what's the rest of the instruction? They don't investigate that at all. So it's a pretty interesting phenomenon that over the years, the Buddha's teaching actually pretty much disappeared. And as a result, a lot of the different people that wanted to follow the Buddha's path and the Buddha's philosophy, they began to change things around to suit what they thought was what the Buddha was talking about. And they added weird things into it because they weren't processing, processing, I don't like that word very much. They weren't experiencing be, becoming arahats and they still wanted people to come and follow what they thought the Buddha was teaching. They developed this idea of a bodhisattva. What is a bodhisattva vow? a vow taken to become a future Buddha. And then the philosophies got going more and more, and then it, it just 
turned into a thing where you don't even expect to become awakened because you've taken a bodhisattva vow. The bodhisattva vow stops you from experiencing Nibbana in this lifetime. So all of these things are so much intertwined that people have become attached to it. And of course, they're going to ignore any other person that doesn't agree with what they're doing. That's kind of the nature of, of life. And as a result, we, we lose this simple instruction of the meditation and take on a much more difficult kind of meditation. It's kind of interesting because uh, for instance, somebody just wrote me a letter on the email and they said, you know, I've practiced Goenka style meditation and I'm not putting down Goenka by saying this. This is just the fact that he practiced that. And he had fear every time he sat down to meditate and he practiced it for 20 years because he had such confidence in a teacher and it didn't lead to what he thought it should lead to. And he had this fear for 20 years. And then he began, he ran across uh, some YouTubes that I give talks on. And he started to see that he was causing that fear in himself because he was taking it personally. And now he doesn't have fear. And he's so thankful. That's how we get misguided in doing a lot of the different things because we have confidence in the, I, I think it's kind of a, a personality um, attachment that we get to other teachers. Well, seems that he's right. He's saying a lot of the words that I agree with, so he must be right. Now, when you come and teach, you'll hear me say, I don't want you to believe a word I say. I want you to experience what I'm talking about and judge for yourself whether it's the correct path or not. You have to take that responsibility for yourself. And if you want to add this or that from some other meditation because it seemed to work and, and your practice isn't going very well, then look at that and tell yourself, well, you know, I've been trying this and it didn't work. 
maybe if I try something else and completely follow that suggestion, that you're going to be successful. I'm not a proselytizer. I'm not trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do for yourself. You are your own teacher and you're teaching yourself by direct practice. All I'm asking you to do is investigate a new way completely, like taking all of the Satipatthana Sutta and using them instead of just taking part and then doing something else with it. Just see for yourself. I'm not here to criticize another person's way. Are there advantages to doing the meditation the way you do it? Some of them. Some of them, they can be not such good advantages. It's up to you what you're doing. So please don't criticize me and say that I'm against this other person. I'm not. I mean, I've even gone so far as to be in Goenka's house in India, and this is after he died, and talked with his brother about meditation. And it was very cordial. We didn't argue. We didn't fight. We didn't say this way is the way and that way is supposed to be the way. And, and we, we got along famously because we were able to listen to each other and then was willing to change a little bit and see if it helped. And now they're starting to teach Goenka in a different way that doesn't push as hard, doesn't need as much energy. And they're starting to see more and more that they are having more joy come up into their life. They're not following exactly these instructions, but they did incorporate the relaxed step, which is letting go of craving. So let's get back to the actual instructions. Now the key word that is pretty much ignored with you understand when you take a long breath and when you take a short breath, the word that's pretty much misunderstood is the word misunderstand. It doesn't say focus. It says, you know when you're breathing and you don't have to focus any place in your body. You know when you take a breath. You know when it's long. You know when it's short. 
That's all it, uh, that's all it means. You don't have to add any other instruction to that. It means pay attention so you understand when you're breathing and how your breathing is short or subtle or gross and big. You know. The next part is the actual instruction. It's only two sentences. I sh he trains thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of breath. Now, the of breath is not in the actual sutta. It's the whole body. You know what's happening in your body. You know, when you're sitting and you get a pain, you know it's there. You, you're practicing this part of the meditation. Now, the thing that is <coughs> important to understand is the Buddha gave us the perfect instruction in how to handle different things that happen in the body. And that is to use the six R's. Now I say the six R's because that's an easier way to understand what right effort actually is. Right effort is four parts. You can read that in a lot of different books and such. But what to do with them is not in those books because they say suppress, push away, stop, fight with, or try to just leave it there by itself. Right effort is first recognizing when your mind is not on your object of meditation. Second, release that distraction. What does that mean? It means as soon as you see that your mind is pulled away from that, let it be there by itself. Don't get involved in thinking about what that distraction is. That just means that it's going to keep coming back and it's going to get bigger and more intense as you put your attention on it, as you feed it with your attention. So you don't make a big deal out of any kind of distraction. You allow it to be there by itself and don't keep your attention on it anymore. 
if you don't feed it with your distraction, it's going to go away by itself. Next, you relax. Now, what is a distraction? Where did the distraction come from? The distraction came from past unwholesome activity. In other words, you broke a precept. Now you see why I was talking about precepts earlier. Now you see what's the cause of every distraction. Well, what happens when you break a precept? You have a tiny little voice in your mind that says, I shouldn't have done that. And you feel guilty. So every distraction is an old feeling of guilt that you identified with, that you took personally. I shouldn't have done that. Now, we've all broken precepts. We've all broken all of the precepts at some point or another in some lifetime or other. We don't have to know what the precept is that we broke. What we need to do is recognize that it's there, let it be there by itself, and relax. Relax the tension and tightness in your head, in your mind. Now, a lot of you have heard me talk about the meninges and how that's just a bag that goes over the brain. Every time you have a hindrance arise, your brain expands and causes subtle tension and tightness in your head, in your mind. And actually, it extends to the meninges that goes around your spine. So we're talking about the whole body. Now you relax. How do you relax? You let it be there by itself without keeping your attention on it. Excuse me. Now, that's half of right effort. What's the other part or parts? Bringing up something wholesome. Now, let me back up a little bit. When you relax that tension and tightness, you'll notice in your mind you don't have any thoughts. You don't have any distractions. Your mind is alert without a lot of effort. And your mind is pure because you have let go of that false belief in a personal self. You have let go of craving. Pretty amazing. 
So when you put a smile into your practice, you're doing a couple of things at the same time that you don't really notice that much, but after a period of time, you do notice it. The more you smile, and I'm talking about all the time smile, I'm not talking about just sitting, but the more you smile, the better your mindfulness becomes, the better your observation power becomes, the easier it is to recognize when your mind starts to get tight and you recognize it more easily. And you use the six R's and you recognize that your mind's starting to get tight and you allow it to be there and relax. So smiling is a major part of the practice that's not talked about too much in, in the Buddhist texts, but it is talked about and it is implied in the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. What's the opposite expression of suffering? What's the opposite of that? Smiling, being happy. Now, smiling is kind of misunderstood. I know that there are some meditation teachers that they've heard about smiling enough. They'll tell you, okay, smile. Then I'll give that in the first day of the instruction and not talk about it again. And they also will talk about more about relaxing but they'll just tell you that one time and then that you're on it for the rest of the meditation. They don't emphasize it near enough to be successful. But you hear me talk about it a lot because I think it's that important and practicing right effort every time you smile Every time you use the six R's, you are practicing the entire eightfold path at that time. So you're on the right path. Kind of amazing to think how, how intertwined everything really is and how you can do so much in such a, such a simple way. Oh, I know a lot of people that practice one-pointed concentration or they don't like to call it that, whatever kind of concentration that they don't have a relaxed step in. And they will defend it. This is the right way when they start to practice just out of curiosity to see if it works or not. 
and their mindfulness is strong enough, they're going to see every time they relax, there's pressure that's being let go of that they didn't see before. And they will start to be more successful with the meditation. Now, they've been practicing a form of mindfulness. That's not what the Buddha taught, but it, it's a form of mindfulness, and their mindfulness is strong enough to be able to recognize, oh, this is different. This is nice. I like it. Now, one of the things that, that's been going around with so many teachers is they like to talk more about suffering than how to get rid of the suffering. And that's, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And a lot of people walk around saying, Buddhism is some form of pessimism. And that's the opposite of what it's, what's really happening. But because an awful lot of people, monks and that sort of thing, English is their second language, they don't understand the subtleties of there is suffering in life and they don't understand the difference between that and all life is suffering, which is pretty big. My whole career as a monk has been dedicated to the idea that the meditation is supposed to be fun. It's okay to laugh. I've had students that are really gifted artists in one form or another quit because they thought Buddhism was more important. And when I get a hold of them, I, I, why do you, why are you quitting? Why are you not doing more of your artwork? Why aren't you being more creative? Well, all life is suffering and I'm supposed to suffer. So I, I really do a good job of that. I have a friend that quit. He had a, a master's in music. And he quit his music and he suffered a lot because of it and felt guilty anytime he picked up his instruments to play it. <coughs> when I started talking to him, I convinced him that that was the wrong idea. And then he started to get it, especially when I got him to start practicing the six R's. I hadn't seen him for 20 years. We had a connection that was remarkable, but he got this idea that he was supposed to suffer, so he was gonna do the best he could at it. And he did not have a happy life. 
He had moments of happiness, of course, everybody does. But it's just the misunderstanding of the translation. So when I convinced him he was supposed to uh, have joy and have joy while he was playing his instrument, right after that, he practiced it. He had a lot more joy in his life and he got into a con uh, uh, orchestra playing professionally. And he had pushed that away because he wanted to get off the wheel of sansara. Just because he followed what the teacher said to do, not what the Buddha said to do. Now, I, I hear comments about this is Vimala Ramsey's way of doing things. No, it's not my way. I'm only a guide. You're your own teacher. You learn how to teach yourself from direct experience and then observe whether it's working or not. And when it does, you get excited. And you go, okay, let's do that some more. This is nice. This is fun. And this is the way it's supposed to be. It's not my way. What I get to do is observe your successes. And that makes me ecstatically happy. but you're taking the responsibility to change. You want to change because you're suffering and you're willing to change, to let go of those old habits that have a tendency to pull you down, have a tendency to make you depressed, have a tendency to make you fearful. or filled with anxiety. This man that wrote, and this was just a couple days ago, he said, for 20 years, I have had panic attacks. 20 years of panic attacks, being afraid of something, whatever it was. And now, after a couple of years of practicing this, not coming to the center, he wouldn't take that long, but he did it on its own and he has no panic attacks arising anymore. How sweet is that? And that gets my juices going because that's just an affirmation that what he is doing is correct and what the Buddha taught really does work.
can't get any better than that. It's exciting to see people that have been so hard on themselves for so many years and criticize themselves that they really hate themselves and they get caught in the psychological stuff about the way you overcome it is just by reliving it over and over and over and over again for years and then you finally won't have any reaction to it. That's psychology. But when you follow the Buddha and his Four Noble Truths and Four Foundations of Mindfulness, your progress is fast. You don't have to suffer for years and years and years. You learn by having a light mind. Your light mind is alert. Your light mind is pure. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it until it becomes a habit. And what happens after that? You start developing more and more equanimity in your mind. You more more balance. You don't have to do the psychological things like beating on a pillow to get rid of your anger, which really makes your anger bigger and more intense, doesn't make it go away. But you feel some relief when you finally let it go in your mind. And then you go, well, that seemed to work. But how long does it work? Until the next situation that anger comes up. Now, you haven't been mindful of it. You haven't been aware of it. You've let your mind dictate how to control what you're doing while you're doing it. And quite often, that leads to a state of remorse and sadness and problems for yourself. Well, you don't need to have years of sadness or fear or anxiety to overcome it. That's not why you're here. Somebody just asked me, well, I'm alive, but why? Why am I here? And I told him that the reason you're here is to learn and to be happy. Yeah, but there's so much bad stuff happening in the world. Well, that's his world. There's bad stuff happening, yes. But it doesn't have to affect you in a negative way. You can have balance without getting caught in what the dependent origination calls bhava. Now, I give it a different definition than other people. 
I've talked to a lot of very, very advanced monks about this, and they agree with me that it is a better definition than existence. What is that supposed to mean? Or becoming, what is that supposed to mean? I call it habitual emotional tendency. Sometimes I throw emotional in there, sometimes I don't. But it's your habitual tendency. That's what you get caught with. When you try to think your feeling and try to control your feeling with your thoughts, it don't work. But you get attached to doing it in the same way over and over and over again. And then you run to a medical doctor and said, please give me some pills so I won't be depressed. And they give you pills and it dulls you out. So you walk around like a zombie and you're not so depressed, but you're not so happy either. I get people complaining to me because they say it's harder to get rid of this stuff than what you're saying. But it isn't really. Not if you're sincere in change. Now, there are some people that come and they don't want to change. And if they're not willing to change their perspective and way of doing things, if they want to keep to the old way of doing things, then why come to me? Go find another teacher. And I've told some people that. Because they weren't willing to change. They weren't willing to have a more uplifted mind because they were so attached and thought they were doing it the right way. Okay. I have to have enough compassion to, for them to allow them to go and continue suffering. I can't take somebody's suffering away. I can allow them the space to have their suffering, 